MI6 tries to work out what to do with Blake. And of course, one of the options that is considered is shall we just bump him off? This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you subscribe in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. I'd like to thank our friends at Profile Books for sponsoring this episode and helping to support the work of Cold War Conversations. Do check them out at profilebooks.com. The Happy Traitor is the biography of George Blake, the last major British traitor of the Cold War, by acclaimed author and journalist Simon Cooper. In 1961, Blake was sentenced to 42 years imprisonment, at the time the longest sentence in British modern history. He had betrayed all the Western spying operations that he knew about to the KGB, and this included the names of hundreds of British agents working around the world. About 40 of them are believed to have been executed. Blake is reckoned to have done as much damage to British interests as did his Moscow companions Kim Philby and Donald MacLean, and perhaps more. MI6 has never made its files on him public. Now that the master spy has died, Simon Cooper can finally set the record straight. He unravels who Blake truly was through a combination of personal interviews, research in many languages, and the use of the Stasi archives. We talk about Blake's beginnings as a teenage courier for the Dutch underground during the Second World War, to his sensational prison break from Wormwood Scrubs, to his tranquil old age in a dacha outside Moscow, where Simon Cooper caught up with and interviewed him. I start by asking Simon what first attracted him to the George Blake story. We welcome Simon Cooper to our Cold War conversation. We share a background, as it were. Uh, we both grew up British in the Netherlands, speaking Dutch, and uh, I'm Jewish, Blake's part Jewish, so we had quite a lot in common. And when I read about him for the first time 20-plus years ago in a Dutch magazine, I thought, what an extraordinary life, and amazing that he's still alive, and I'd love to interview him one day. And in 2012 in Moscow, a mutual friend set us up, so I found myself at Blake's Dacha interviewing him for an article in a Dutch newspaper. That was the plan. And I walked out at the end of several hours thinking that was the most interesting interview I've ever done. It's really more than an article. And over the years after that, I decided to turn it into a book. Where I wanted to start in this interview is is about his early life, because that does form to a very great degree his beliefs later on, doesn't it? Very much so. Uh, his Calvinism is what you're talking about. Yes. So Blake is born in Rotterdam in 1922, and his father is a Jew from Constantinople who had fought in the French Foreign Legion and in the British Army during World War One. Uh, he'd seen a lot of action, he'd been gassed, and he'd become a British citizen. And at the end of the war, the Brits send him to Rotterdam to help repatriate British prisoners of war from Germany. And there he meets Blake's mother, who's quite a posh Protestant Rotterdammer, and they get married. Blake's born in 1922. And he is raised thinking of himself as a Calvinist, which is the main form of Dutch Protestantism. And he doesn't know that his father is Jewish. His father keeps this secret. His father presents himself as a Brit and a Protestant. Um, you know, Britishness is high status. He opens a shop called the British Sports House. And so Blake thinks, um, or he's called George Behar at that point, and he thinks, uh, I'm, a pro I'm a Protestant Calvinist, and he embraces this very fundamentalist form of Calvinism, which he thinks the Dutch royal family follows as well, not quite correctly. And it's an idea that there is no free will. We humans are just instruments of God. Uh, we cannot really decide anything for ourselves. Uh, God determines everything. And so this very strong determinism 
will always remain his worldview. So when he publishes his autobiography in 1990, 1991, it's called No Other Choice. So in other words, nothing that he did in his life, he thinks, could have been different. It was just the way it had to be. And he continues to believe in this even after he uh, stops believing that Jesus is the Son of God, even after kind of departing a bit from Christianity. His father dies when... Blake is age 12, and that throws the family into some significant financial difficulties. Well, the father had uh, a little shop, a couple of different shops in succession, and it was already doing very badly in the Great Depression, and the father gradually sickens further. His lungs have been so badly damaged by gas in World War I, and in 1935, he dies, leaving the family impoverished. and. Albert, the father, has clearly told his soon-to-be widow, look, when I die, write to my sister in Cairo and she'll sort you out, because his sister is married to a very wealthy banker in Cairo, and they uh, live in this fantastic mansion in the middle of Zamalek, the poshest part of Cairo. And a letter arrives from the sister after Albert's death saying, um, by the way, our family is Jewish, which is news to everyone in the house. And uh, Blake, George, should come and live with us. And so George is sent, age 13, to Cairo, where he goes first to a British school and to a French school, learns both languages very well, very quickly, and becomes a cosmopolitan. Goes home to Rotterdam in the school holidays, but for three years he is really living most of the time in Cairo, which is an eye-opener to this Rotterdam Calvinist. It's here he first sees the massive inequalities between rich and poor, which uh, again sort of start to shape his thoughts in the future. Poverty in Egypt in the 1930s is extreme and average life expectancy is 30. The family has a sort of factory on a large estate where uh, children work and uh, die in large numbers. Blake sees this and they have 10 servants in the home. So this kind of extreme wealth, extreme poverty, cheek by jowl, is bound, I think, to produce some communists on both sides, among the rich and among the poor. So you see this also among the Cambridge Five um, at the same time in the 1930s. They are growing up in the wealthiest class in Britain. Uh, they, they see the poverty of the Great Depression, and it radicalizes. Blake in Cairo does not yet become a communist, but his older charismatic cousin Henri Curiel, with whom who lives in the house, man at that point in his early 20s, uh, does become a communist and becomes a kind of Egyptian communist leader. And no doubt all this has a strong but latent influence on Blake. He starts to think, well, you know, there is this terrible inequality and injustice in the world. And communism is introduced to him as an idea however he's back in holland when the germans invade in 1940 and one of the other influences i think you you talk about in the book is the is that he sees the devastation of aerial bombing which again comes up later on in his story when he's in korea yes so in 1940, May, the Germans invade the Netherlands and they bomb his hometown of Rotterdam to pieces. And Blake is hiding under the table with a kitchen pan over his head and he experiences this. And I think it's very important that he saw his hometown being destroyed because after that, it's much easier to imagine the destruction of the world, which he feels is at stake in the Cold War, which for many people is always a bit of an abstraction. But for him, it's something he could really emotionally process because it had happened to Rotterdam. And he joins the resistance. You know, he's, he's a British citizen, never becomes a Dutch citizen. Uh, citizen. He's half Jewish. And he goes underground in um, a wooded area of the Eastern Netherlands. And he's a courier for a resistance group, bring, bringing around newspapers and messages. But he feels this is small time. And to play in the big league of espionage, which, you know, as a late teenager, he's already becoming acquainted with. He becomes used to living underground and deceiving. So to play in the big league, he feels he has to go to Britain. Now, I, I've just received communication since the book was published. I've, I've had quite a lot of emails from people whose families knew Blake in some way. 
And one woman writes that her father had to dissuade Blake from taking a canoe across the North Sea from uh, the Netherlands to Britain, which, of course, could easily have been fatal. Instead, he tries something just as dangerous. He escapes miraculously, age 20, through occupied Europe, across Belgium and France, into Spain, gets to Gibraltar, gets on a boat to Britain so that he can uh, reunite with his mother and sisters and, uh, he hopes, become an agent of the British. I was intrigued to, to read that his mother and sister had already managed to escape to England and left him behind. Have you any indication of what impact that had on him as being abandoned like that? Well, he said he wouldn't have left anyway. I mean, the the British embassy in the hours after the German invasion will have been warning British citizens to get on boats very quickly. And so the mother and sisters who were in The Hague got the message and George in Rotterdam didn't. But he said, look, I would have stayed anyway because to abandon my country in its hour of need would have felt like betrayal. And so he misses his mother. He'll always be a mummy's boy all his life. And that's part of the reason he goes to Britain. But he's with his uncle who... um, according to an MI6 officer, was a major communist. I've not been able to ascertain that. And his grandmother. And so he does have family around to help him with the next step. He arrives in in London and he wants to work for the Secret Service, but he's initially in the Navy. Yeah, he's in the Navy and he's trained on these midget submarines, which are these kind of two-man kamikaze submarine boats where you attack a German boat in a harbour and then just try to get away, which obviously you're not likely to. And uh, luckily for him, it turns out that he passes out when underwater, so he's manifestly unequipped for the job. And then uh, through a naval commander, Kenneth Cohen, he's tapped up for SIS, the Secret Intelligence Service. And they obviously have national missions, so they have Norwegian speakers working with the Norwegian resistance, Dutch speakers with the Dutch resistance, etc. And Blake, as a fluent Dutch speaker who's a British citizen, is ideal for the job. So he's recruited into SIS, and a lot of his job is escorting young Dutchmen who are going to be parachuted back into the occupied Netherlands, many of whom will die there. And then when they send back garbled radio messages, he tries to make sense of them. At the end of the war, he's sent to the Netherlands and and then Germany, and he's managing German naval officers spying on the Soviet zone. Yeah, so he realises sort of long before most people that the Cold War has begun, that Britain's enemy is no longer Nazi Germany, but even by late 1945, it's the Soviet Union. And he is in a position where he's working with these naval officers, many of whom are Nazis, former Nazis, and trying to encourage them to spy on the Soviet zone of East Germany. And he feels very uncomfortable about this because just a few months before, the Soviet Union was a British ally defeating Hitler. And now he's working with Nazis against this ally and he doesn't like it. I mean, he says this with hindsight in talks he gives to the Stasi, which I've seen videos of in the 70s and 80s. But I think it's credible that even then uh, he felt a discomfort about doing this. So he knows the Cold War has begun. With the Cold War beginning, uh, SIS give him a uh, rather interesting book to read. Yeah, so there's an SIS officer called Carew Hunt who has written this book called The Theory and Practice of Communism. And it's meant to explain to British agents what communism is so they can fight it all the better. And it's you know it's obviously not a positive portrayal. It talks about gulags. But Blake finds it unexpectedly inspiring, and he f- reads the book as a lapsing Calvinist, and he feels, well, the, the, the kingdom of God in the afterlife that the Christians pursue, the communists are pursuing on this earth, where everyone is equal and lives in good circumstances, and there's no material excess. So he um, is against all the intentions of this book. He is convinced by it that communism sounds like a pretty good idea. And as part of his training, he's uh, sent to uh, Cambridge uh, to to learn Russian and and effectively falls in love with Russia, from what I can make out. Yes. I mean, he has this gift for languages. And the professor of Slavonic studies at Cambridge, one of the first 
women with a job like that in the university is Elizabeth Hill. And she grew up in St. Petersburg before the revolution in this community of British merchants, many of whom married Russian women. And she sees she's the product of a British-Russian marriage. Uh, she speaks Russian like a native, loves Russia, hates communism. And Blake falls for the language very quickly. Within a couple of months, he's reading Anna Karenina in the original. And Elizabeth Hill also takes him to Orthodox church services in London. And he uh, loves the beauty of these services. And so he starts to fall in love, not so much with Soviet communism as with Russia. Uh, Hill passes on to him her kind of patriotism for Russia. And of course, he's now a man without a fatherland. He left the Netherlands in 1942. He will never live there again. And he is also losing his attachment to Calvinism. He's decided that having, you know, taken in too much wine, women and song in the months after the liberation in the Netherlands and in Germany, he is no longer worthy to become a Calvinist pastor. So he needs another vocation. Where, where is he posted to after this training? Well, you'd think that having learned Russian and speaking German, you would do something involving one of those countries. But no, the SIS, in all its wisdom, sends him to South Korea, where uh, a country that doesn't interest him, doesn't speak the language. And he has an assignment there to try and make contact and find agents in Vladivostok, because Vladivostok's only 450 miles from Seoul. However, it's impossible to get from Seoul to Vladivostok. There's no traffic, there's no trade links. And so it's a completely hopeless assignment. But his other task there is to wait until the Korean War breaks out. The Brits have told him this will happen. And when that war breaks out, he's been told the UK will stay neutral. And so he will be able to sit there and observe the war. So that is his assignment when in June 1950, North Korea does indeed invade Seoul. But against his expectations, the Attlee government then enters the war on the American side. And he realizes at this point, A, the UK is no longer a superpower, we're just a poodle of the United States, which is a big shock to him. And B, he's now in mortal danger because he, he's an enemy alien. You know, As a diplomat, he should have diplomatic protection. The North Koreans completely ignore that. They uh, arrest all the British diplomats. They're taken north. They end up on this death march lasting months where hundreds of people around them, especially American POWs, die. And then they end up stuck in this North Korean farmhouse for two years with essentially nothing to do. And on that journey, he sees US bombers destroying Korean villages. Yeah, I mean, he's very radicalized by seeing the, you know, awful murder committed by the American bomber planes on South Korea. I mean, Curtis LeMay, the American general in charge, estimated later that 20% of the civilian population had been killed by American bombing. And Blake thinks this is horrific. Why is the West interfering in this country in which it has no business to be? And so he comes to feel that he's fighting on the wrong side of the Cold War. He's fighting for the bad guys. And also, I mean, this is quite an existential moment, you know, Everyone around him is dying. He has dysentery. He thinks it's quite likely that he will die in Korea. He's an idealist. And does he want to die on the wrong side? And so that's the state of mind he's in when at the farmhouse, you know, these eight British and French prisoners who are diplomats and journalists, intelligent men, bored out of their minds. One day, a package of books arrives from the Soviet embassy in Pyongyang. So they're all extremely excited. The one book in English is uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, and they read it to pieces. Um, they, they just read it constantly. And the other two books are in Russian, uh, Lenin's State and Revolution and Marx's Capital in Russian translation. And the only two men who can read Russian are Blake and the British consul in South Korea, Vivian Holt. And so they sit on a, a burial hill for weeks, reading Capital twice, astonishingly, in Russian, discussing it. And what's very convincing to Blake is that Holt, this older man, this, this servant of the British Empire, says to him, look, I think that communism is the future. And I think the British Empire is doomed. And unfortunately, communism is going to win. And Blake is very persuaded by this. So the readings of Marx are what tip him over, you know, after all the previous influences, these feelings of fighting on the wrong side, the horror of the American bombing and so on. Reading Marx tips him over. 
And one night he hands the North Korean camp commander a note in Russian to pass on to the Soviet embassy. And essentially this is when he goes over to the other side. How do the Soviets know that he's genuine at this point? Do they do they test him in some way? Very much so. So the KGB sends an agent, Nikolai Layenko, who interrogates all the prisoners so as not to draw undue attention to Blake. And when Blake says, look, you know, I want to be a KGB agent, Layenko gives him this assignment. He says, write down the entire structure of SIS, how it works. Blake does this, and Lanko then compares it to what Kim Philby had given the KGB a few years earlier, the organizational structure of SIS, and Blake's account and Philby's account tally. And that's when they, the Soviets feel, well, we can trust Blake. When Khrushchev comes to power, there's a rapid warming of, of relations to some degree, and the Korean War ends. Prisoners of war return. And uh, Blake returns in 1953 to, to a hero's welcome. But I remember reading in the book, there's a really interesting quote from Blake, I think, to you as to what he was thinking when he stepped off the plane. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War, um, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Yeah, he says something like, all these people come to welcome me did not know that I was no longer the person they thought I was. So he steps off the plane, embraces his mother, who's waiting there for him, of course, and he is now a KGB agent. So he's carrying this dark secret around, but nobody suspects it. And even though this is only two years after Burgess and McLean have defected to the Soviet Union, SIS never seems to think, well, you know, maybe Blake has been turned in North Korea. They uh, give him a very, very gentle debriefing, lasting a day or two, and then they send him on holiday. And a few months later, he is allowed to resume work in SIS's head office but now with a secret camera hidden in his back pocket, photographing documents and passing them to his KGB handlers every couple of weeks. And how is he able to communicate with his KGB handlers in London? How, how is he managing to, to pass that information over? Well, they're very careful because he knows as an SIS agent that the Soviet embassy in um London is watched 24 hours a day. The KGB also suspects that uh, MI6 has a network of taxi drivers throughout London who are keeping their eyes open for this kind of thing, which may be true, I don't know. And so he has very complicated meetings with his handlers, uh, mostly a man called Sergei Kondrashev. And so, you know, they'll take two buses and then get off and then uh, walk to the next tube station, et cetera, et cetera. And the first meeting is on a dark corner in Belsize Park. They'll meet in deserted suburban train stations in the evenings and in cinemas. And so they very successfully, for years and years, in London and later in Berlin, Blake is essentially passing every British secret document he can get his hands on to the KGB. Incredible. And I can really believe Dick White's quote then that he was more damaging than Philby because it sounds like he was handing over every document that he could get his hands on for, I think, nine years he was operational before he was um, discovered. 1953 to 1960, he has a lot of secrets to hand over from London and from Berlin. And he's a very diligent spy at lunchtime when his colleagues go out into the West End. He stays in the office, closes the door, and photographs and photographs. 
And the most damaging things he does is he betrays the identity of several hundred UK agents who are based behind the Iron Curtain to the Soviets. And it's estimated later that about 40 of these people are executed. And he also betrays to the Soviets the Berlin spy tunnel, which the British and the Americans have dug under East Berlin. And in fact, the man taking the minutes at the first meeting to set up the Berlin spy tunnel is none other than Blake. And he hands a copy of the minutes to the Soviets. So the Soviets know about this tunnel even before it's built. The Soviets value Blake. In fact, his codename's Diamond, isn't it? I, th- I thought it meant Diamond. Um, he's Agent Diomed, and it actually means Diomedes, um, the Greek Diomedes. And that's also the name of a bay in Vladivostok where Lyanko was from. So although everyone has written that Agent Diomed means Diamond, in fact, it means Diomedes. Right. Well, there's exclusive news there from, uh, from Simon. Thank you. So the KGB really value Blake because with the spy tunnel, even though they know that a lot of their secrets are being given away by these tapped phone lines, they don't close it down because they, they want to protect Blake. Yes. I mean, it's a really surprising story. This is a, a crucial moment in the Cold War because neither side really knows the other's intentions after Stalin is gone. So the West is worried about a sudden Russian attack, quite likely through Germany, or a kind of uh, Russian Hiroshima, a bombing of New York, say, or a Russian Pearl Harbor, you know, sudden destruction of, of American military. And, you know, do the Soviets plan anything like this? No idea. Uh, the West has no human intelligence anywhere near the Kremlin. So at this point, so they build this spy tunnel under Berlin to listen into Soviet phone calls. The KGB knows all about it, but the KGB is so proud of Blake, you know, it's, it's prime agent that it realizes if we blow the tunnel, the Americans and British will realize that somebody betrayed it and they might well realize it was Blake. And so to protect Blake, the KGB doesn't even warn the Soviet military that all their phone calls from Berlin are now being overheard. It just lets things go on and lets the West listen in. And even most people within the KGB in Berlin are not told that all their conversations now being overheard. Wow. Wow. But I guess it, it calms down the Western's view that the Soviets are going to attack at any moment. So it does diffuse a lot of the tensions. Yeah, the tunnel is surprisingly successful in keeping world peace for the year or so it's operating, 1954-55, and then even afterwards, because the main thing about the intercepted Soviet communications is they're incredibly banal. I mean, it's Soviet officers talking about sex, Soviet officers whinging about their superiors, and obviously just kind of being incompetent, hanging around. And what there is not is any mention of troop movements, of any plans for a Russian attack of any kind. I mean, the West gets some valuable tidbits, like, you know, the names and addresses of Soviet nuclear scientists. It gets the first uh, rumors of uh, Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin at the Party Congress in 1956. But what there is not is anything to worry about. And so this really is incredibly important in calming things down, as you say, in that mid-50s period of, you know, intense worry. And in in the meantime, he started a relationship with Gillian Allen, who works in SIS. Yeah, Gillian Allen is the daughter of a British colonel who speaks Russian, who works MI5. And she is a secretary in MI6. I mean, you know, the SIS like to keep things in the family, kept the net reasonably tight. And also, you know, MI6, particularly in in this period, was a kind of upper class club. So if you were born into it, so much the better. Gillian falls in love with Blake and he tries to dissuade her from getting married because, you know, he knows that as a KGB agent, he can't really offer her much of a future. She persuades him to get married, and they have um, 
in the end, they will have three sons. And Gillian is a very straightforwardly conservative, patriotic British woman. She's not the kind of person to tolerate a KGB spy in her marital bed. But she doesn't know. No, no. And in 1959, Blake is posted to Berlin. What's his role in in Berlin at that time? Well, what he's supposed to be doing is recruiting agents for Britain, trying to persuade East Germans and Soviets to betray their states and work for the UK. What he does, of course, is uh, the opposite. He It's very easy in Berlin before the wall is built at that point to cross the city. And so he will make frequent trips to East Berlin. He'll pop into KGB headquarters for brief chats. And so he's just passing on everything that he hears to um, the Russians. But it's a very dangerous place because, I mean, there are hundreds or thousands of agents in East Berlin. All the major powers are recruiting agents because this is the place where the Cold War is most likely to blow up and go hot. And, you know, a lot of people are working, taking money from different powers as agents. So there's all sorts of double agents, triple agents around. And that's very risky for someone like Blake because the way a spy like him is always going to be exposed is a defector from the Soviet side. And there are a lot of those people running around in Berlin, including one in East German called, called Horst Eitner, whose evidence will later help implicate Blake. But the, the first sign to MI6 that they've got a problem is via the CIA, who were receiving information from what turns out to be a, a senior Polish counterintelligence officer. Yeah, so MI6 knew that some documents had been disappearing and ending up in Soviet hands, but they didn't know who was the mole. And Blake was on a list of about 10 suspects, but they weren't sure who was doing it. And then this Polish intelligence officer, Golonievsky, defects in about 1960-61. And he tells the CIA, he shows the CIA a document that could only have come from MI6 and that it appears came from Blake. And so this is when MI6 realize the mole is Blake. And this is corroborated by evidence from Horst Eitner, the East German agent, and later from another Polish defector. And so they now know Blake is a KGB agent. But the problem that MI6 then have is Blake is on a language course in Lebanon learning Arabic. And so they have to persuade him to come home from Lebanon to London to be interrogated, but they don't want to tip him off, obviously, that this is an interrogation. This is a very delicate moment, and so they pass on to him that he should come home to discuss a promotion. Of course he smells a rat. Of course he worries that he's been found out. But he goes to see his KGB handler on a beach in Lebanon, and the handler says, don't worry, the Brits don't suspect you. So Blake flies to London, walks into the office on Broadway in St. James. And when I asked him what he felt at that moment, he said he broke into English. We'd been speaking Dutch. And he said, I felt the game is up. <laughs> it's interesting because they sent him to, to Lebanon just to sort of get him out of the way while they were doing some of the investigative work, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, they had enough suspicion of Blake that they didn't want him around any sensitive documents anymore. He was also keen to go to Lebanon. He had this love of Arabic. He uh, said later that he was considering you know, getting out of espionage and getting a job in an oil company or something to um, make his life a lot simpler. So he's happy to go to Lebanon. The service is happy to get him out of the way. And, you know, Philby, of course, will also be parked there. When Philby is under suspicion, he ends up being a newspaper correspondent uh, working from Beirut. Yeah, that, that was one of the things that intrigued me as to whether it was the uh, the default place to put anybody who's a bit iffy. Uh, I suppose so, yeah. I mean, it's a pleasant place, so the iffy person is uh, is happy to be there. And both Philby and Blake had um, a kind of family interest in Arabic. And so it was congenial for them both, but they didn't know each other there. I'm very confident that Philby and Blake never spoke until they met in Moscow much later. 
that scene that you painted there with him arriving at Broadway and he's met by Shergold, who is sort of the, the MI6's, SIS's chief interrogator. Would that be correct? I think Shergold's main role is as a Russia specialist. He's a very respected figure in the service. He knows Russia well, and he knows Blake and has been assigned to lead the interrogation. And he walks Blake across to the office in uh, Carlton Gardens, and Blake realizes that this is because head office there it will be easier to record the interrogation. And so Shergold and a couple of others interrogate Blake for a couple of days while in the room below, special branch officers sit watch sit waiting so that once Blake has confessed to Shergold, they can get a confession that will stand up in court. And Blake spends two days denying, denying. And in the evenings, in a very British spirit, he is allowed to go home to stay with his mother in Radless in Hertfordshire, although um, MI6 did take the precaution of tailing him there. And he shows up every day for this interrogation, and it's only about two and a half days in that he finally breaks. And it's when one of the interrogators says, well, George, we know you were KGB, but it's not your fault. You were tortured in Korea, and the Koreans made you do this. You had no choice. And Blake gets very upset because he wants always to be seen as an idealistic spy. And so he bursts out angrily, no, nobody tortured me, nobody forced me. I spied for the Russians of my own accord. I decided to do it. And his interrogators are flabbergasted that he has come out with this because had he just held out for another half day, you know, they had no evidence on him that would stand up in court, they would probably have invited him quietly to fly to Moscow and never come home again and would have left him untouched. So close, so close. I mean, there's loads of extra detail in the book that we're we're not touching on here at all. And one of the little nuggets I loved is that SIS called, uh, internally they called Shergold Shergi. Yeah, it was a public school, old boys association. So everyone had these kinds of public school nicknames. It's also why Blake was an outsider in that, because he... You know, he came from a totally different background. He spoke English with a Dutch accent. And so he was never one of us. I was surprised that, you know, Blake had never had any discussion with the KGB as to what he would do in the event of being caught because he confesses to Special Branch very readily as well, which really seals up his uh, criminal case. Yeah, his first KGB handler, um, I think it was Nikolai Rodin, was um, really careless or or callous in not preparing Blake for what to do in that situation. Philby later said, you know, advised spies, if caught, always deny. And so Blake did, and then he broke. He was not sufficiently aware of the legal situation because the fact that he'd confessed to MI6 wouldn't have stood up in court. MI6 wouldn't have taken that to court. This was all very secret internal stuff. And so if he had refused to confess to the police, it would have been very hard to try him. But he didn't realize that. And he had now you know, entered this kind of fit of honesty and of uh, pleading idealism. So he told Special Branch everything he knew. Then Shergold et al. take him on a country weekend at Shergold's country cottage in Surrey, I think where Blake and Shergold's mother-in-law make pancakes in the kitchen and everybody has a very jolly weekend while MI6 tries to work out what to do with Blake. And, of course, one of the options that is considered is shall we just bump him off? Then you don't have the embarrassment of a court case. And I think it's felt that killing a British citizen in the UK is going a bit far. So this is abandoned. And a message comes from on high from Dick White, look, we're going to put him on trial. We're going to make an example of him. How does his wife get the news that her husband is a traitor? Who who breaks that news to her? It was John Quine, who was an MI6 colleague of Blake's, who knocks on her door in Lebanon. And, um, you know, there's this very British conversation. um, Frightfully sorry, we've had some rather bad news. And... When Gillian hears that her husband of many years is a KGB agent, she's not surprised at all. She thinks, yes, this makes total sense. She doesn't for a moment think, oh, you've got the wrong man. 
she um she suddenly realizes you know that blake's secrecy his friendliness but he doesn't have any friends his lack of belonging anywhere his occasional cryptic political remarks it all falls into place and she thinks yes of course he's a kgb agent wow <laughs> i guess that that sort of yeah it gives you an indication of her of her character I think it's also something about double agents that these are such secretive men that they're very hard to get to know. So M- Melinda McLean says something like that about Donald McLean that you know you can live with a man for many years and never never understand him. Eleanor Philby, one of Philby's wives, said um, maybe it is impossible to know another human being. I mean, spies are a secretive lot. Double agents, even more so, and. So Blake really has two personalities in his life. He has the personality of his years as a spy and a double agent, where he is very hard to get to know. And then he has the much more amiable, pleasant, likable personality after he's exposed, when everybody knows who he is, everyone knows he's a communist and a double agent, he doesn't have to pretend anymore. And then he becomes a really quite um, beloved man in the circles he moves in, initially in prison at Wormwood Scrubs. So he's tried and sentenced, and I, I was interested in some of the insight that the Stasi files gave you. Uh, I don't know who's been in the Stasi files before, but the Stasi files, if you're writing about espionage, are a fantastic asset because MI6 has never made its Blake file public, maybe never will. It's so embarrassing. The Soviet files were open briefly in the early 90s during that period of openness, but have closed since. And so the one major secret service where everything is available is the Stasi because the state that it represented is defunct. And so they have this wonderful and very helpful archive. And the archivist sent me four or so videos of Blake giving very long speeches to Stasi officers. He would be invited about once a year as a kind of celebrity Cold War hero, and he would give talks about his life to the Stasi. And so watching those videos, I mean, it's a fantastic period piece as well, sitting all the, seeing all those Stasi officers uh, with bottles of beer unopened by their side, waiting patiently for George to finish. And then Blake, when he's really able to stop pretending and tell the truth about his espionage career, speak very frankly. Yeah, yeah. I've seen the – they've got the video of Philby on YouTube talking to the Stasi in English. And that is really illuminating because it – you know he's not hiding stuff there he is talking as though he's amongst friends because he believes he's amongst friends so he's much more unguarded and it is a really fascinating piece i'd love to see the uh, the blake films as well although they would be completely in german because he was fluent in german wasn't he he spoke german fluently with a dutch accent and i think that also allowed him as it were to uh, be much more nuanced and complicated then Philby could be in that situation. I've seen those couple of minutes of Philby saying, just deny, deny. I mean, I quoted them earlier. But I'm I'm not aware whether for Philby there's such a wealth of material. I probably saw four hours of Blake speaking to the Stasi. And he was throwing in bits of humour in there as well. (laughs) Uh, Yes. I mean, he said that when he was sent to Berlin by MI6, his mission was to penetrate KGB headquarters in Karlshorst. And he said, well, yesterday I made yes another visit to Karlsruhe, so I believe that I can say I have fulfilled that mission. And the Stasi burst out laughing. He made that same joke, I think, uh, twice on two separate visits. He, he was not a hugely uh, funny man, but he um, he did, I think, relish the, the bizarreness of the situation. Yeah, yeah. So he's sentenced for 42 years, so he wouldn't have been released until 2003. And that's a... Is that a record sentence for espionage? I think at that point it was the longest prison sentence in modern British history. And Harold Macmillan, the Prime Minister, is is quite surprised. And he notes in his diary a savage sentence, exclamation mark. And uh, there are gasps in the courtroom when when the length is announced. So, yeah, I mean, the, the British have been hugely embarrassed. It seems that Justice Parker, the judge, called Macmillan the night before sentencing to ask how much damage Blake had done to British interests. Now, if that happened, you know, as a judge, you're really not supposed to discuss cases under your consideration with anyone and certainly not with the prime minister. If that happened, that was a miscarriage of justice. But um, the British want to show the Americans, 
look, we we are serious about cracking down on our many, many, many defectors because the Americans are getting very fed up with British KGB moles. I mean, at this point, there's already been Burgess and McLean. There have been uh, various smaller fry um, like uh, John Vassell, Vassell and William Marshall, who are lowly functionaries in the British Embassy in Moscow. Philby is under suspicion. There's been the Portland spiring. And so the Brits think, my God, in Britain, really, everybody is a KGB agent. And so they want to pacify the Americans. Luckily for the British, the Americans have their own embarrassment at that point. Blake's arrest happens about the same time as the Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba, which, of course, is a massive American intelligence failure. So just at the moment when Blake is exposed, the Americans themselves are looking rather ridiculous and can't wag their finger too vigorously at the Brits. Right. And in Wormwood Scrubs prison, he becomes almost the life and the soul of the prison. I understand he's teaching French, German, Arabic, helping um, prisoners write letters home. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a sort of shock for him, not just being in prison, but also having to live as himself, because he'd always presented to the world as a fairly conservative civil servant who um, you know, is, has this secret job as a British spy. And now he's sort of out. He's outed himself, or been outed as a Soviet agent and a communist. And so he can sort of relax because he can't be exposed anymore. And, you know, he's a kind, likable, charming man. He's one of the few educated men in the prison. So he writes letters to the authorities for the other prisoners. And, yeah, I mean, everybody adores him, the wardens as well. But he is plotting to escape. And he enlists the help of some fellow prisoners, Sean Burke. He is shortly going to finish his sentence. And also he's working with two CND peace protesters that have been imprisoned as well, Pat Pottle and Michael Randall. Yeah, they had been given a relatively short sentence for trespassing on American military property as part of a protest. And they're released, but they know Blake. And when Burke says to them, look, I'm going to help Blake escape, they agree to cooperate because they think his 42-year sentence is inhumane. And so it's really quite an amateurish plot. I mean, someone in the book says it's like something out of a cartoon book. Uh, Burke throws a rope ladder made of knitting needles up to the wall. He unfortunately doesn't attach anything that can be used to attach the ladder to the wall. So Blake has to jump down about four or five meters um, breaks his wrist, hurts his head, but you know, shoves him into a car. They drive 700 yards, and then they're hiding in a bedsit on the High Lever Road in Shepherd's Bush. And the only problem then is to you know find a secure hiding place. Pat Postle's flat in Hampstead does the job eventually, and they spend a couple of months there. And then Michael Randall um, refashions a dormobile uh, camper van. You know, he cuts out a little cavity in the dormobile. Blake is hidden in that. Michael Randall's family go on a so-called Christmas holiday to Berlin. Blake hidden in the van. Uh, two boys on the back seat, so nobody suspects anything. And they drive Blake to up to the East Berlin border. Blake walks up to a border guard. This is just before Christmas 1966. And Blake says, I want to speak to a Soviet officer. Do they very quickly know who he is then, the, the the Soviets, when he turns up? Yeah, the KGB, contrary to British suspicion, was not involved with the escape. And so the KGB have no idea where Blake is. And when he shows up that night, luckily, his former handler, Sergei Kondrashev, is visiting East Berlin. And so Kondrashev is woken up in the middle of the night and told, there is somebody here asking for the the commandant. Maybe it is him, meaning maybe maybe it is Blake. Kondrasev rushes to find Blake, and they embrace and remain lifelong friends until Kondrasev's funeral 40 years later in Moscow, which Blake attends. So it's a very happy homecoming, at least that first night. And when Blake arrives in the Soviet Union, what, what are his impressions of it? I think like all traitors, he's shocked. He realizes that communism doesn't work. Moscow is a terrible place. It's repressive, poor and gray. And he's given his whole life for an illusion. He's left his wife and three sons behind in the West. He expects at this point that he will never see them again and all for this system that doesn't work. So it's a bit of a shock. But, you know, as he said to me, 
he was an optimist. He was a positive person and he just decided to make the best of it. You know, he was in Russia. He spoke Russian. He wasn't an exile like Philby who was unable to adapt. And he just decided he was going to be positive and build up a new life, which he did. So despite the shock over communism, he meets a Russian woman, they fall in love, they have a son together. And in fact, when I went to see him in 2012, there they were together, a happy old married couple. And, you know, he had made his life there work out. And did he try and communicate with Gillian once he was in the, the Soviet Union? Well, shortly before his escape from the scrubs, she'd come to see him one day and she said, look, George, I've met another man who was also an SIS officer and I want to marry him. Will you give me a divorce? And Blake's plan at this point, secret plan was that he was going to escape from prison to the Soviet union. And then he would summon Gillian and his sons, but he can't very well tell her that. So he doesn't know what to do. So he says, well, of course, Gillian, I'll, I'll grant you a divorce. And so he has signed the divorce papers just before he escapes. And in Moscow, he gets the bad news that Gillian has married, that Gillian has had another child with this man. And he's very depressed about that initially. But luckily for him, his mother comes to stay with him in Moscow, his Dutch mother. And she spends uh, months of each year in Moscow for a long time. And she says to him, look, it's much better that Gillian and your sons have not come here because they would not like the Soviet Union. They would not be able to adjust to it. You must just accept that they have their lives in Britain and Blake gradually comes to see that. He also meets with Philby and McLean when he's there. How does that go? Well, it's two very different relationships. Philby you know, these two very secretive men meet each other. There's a lot of rivalry. Philby had been a big shot in London. Blake had not. But in Russia, their roles are reversed. Uh, Blake has adjusted very well. Philby has not. Philby had uh, been writing, doesn't really speak much Russian, had been writing articles in English for a Russian news service, but was horrified to find that the Russians were censoring them, that he wasn't free to write what he wanted. So he stopped doing that and he wasn't doing anything and he was drinking. And Blake and his wife, Ida, at one point set up Philby with a Russian woman who does indeed marry Philby. And so they take care of him for a while. But then there's a big falling out in about 1976 when Philby's son, John, takes photos of a gathering at Blake's dacha. And John then publishes them in The Observer in Britain. And the Blakes are very upset because uh, Blake didn't want to embarrass his wife in Britain, his ex-wife in Britain and his sons with these photographs of their father, the Soviet traitor. And um, the Philbys refused to apologize. So there's a falling out. They don't speak again, although Blake does attend Philby's funeral in 1988 to pay his respects. Blake's relationship with McLean is much better. McLean becomes a kind of soulmate. He's also from a Presbyterian background, so he shares the kind of um, Protestantism of Blake. They are both idealistic communists, uh, unlike unlike Philby, for whom you know spying for the KGB was more kind of power and excitement game. And so Blake and McLean, who also learns very good Russian, are uh, they find each other? They hope for a communism with a human face. And uh, McLean dies before Gorbachev comes along, but when Gorbachev arrives in power, Blake feels, well, this is what McLean and I have always wanted, a, a humane communism. And then, of course, that disappoints too. Indeed, indeed. When, when Blake is in the Soviet Union, is he helping out with KGB training? What 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 is he being used for? Well, initially, the KGB don't trust him because they think, how on earth could this man who's had a 42-year sentence have escaped from a British jail. Clearly, MI6 must have had a hand in it. MI6 have turned him again and sent him to us, and really he's a triple agent working for the British. So that suspicion at least exists within the KGB, so they can't give Blake any serious work. So he hangs around. They don't give him anything. He works for a while translating Soviet texts into Dutch, but of course that's not very satisfying. And in the end, McLean invites him to join McLean's think tank, which is called IMEMO, which um, does kind of international relations research, kind of, let's say, a Soviet Brookings institution. It's a bit pointless because the people in power don't really pay much attention to it. But Blake then spends the last couple of decades of his working life 
trying to solve the Israeli-Palestinian problem and to persuade the Soviet Union to treat Israel on an equal footing with the Palestinians. Of course, the Soviets are on the PLO side. And, you know, like everyone else who gets involved in the Israeli-Palestinian problem, he doesn't get very far. But this is his passion, reconciling the Arabs and the Jews. When you spoke with him, because you spoke with him at, at quite some length, did he show any remorse for what he'd done? Well, I asked him that question, of course, you know, do you have regrets? And he didn't mention the agents he'd betrayed. He'd always maintained all his life that those people had not been hurt. He told the KGB not to hurt them. Of course, the KGB did hurt them, but he didn't want to know that. And so when he talked about his regrets, he said, I regret what I've done, the sorrow I caused to my ex-wife and my sons, although he was very happy that from the 1980s, his British sons began to visit him in Moscow and he rebuilt his relationship with them. And he said he was also sorry for the, the hurt he had caused to his colleagues at SIS because he, he liked and admired them. And he was sorry that his you know, double agency had entailed betraying all their interests and betraying their, their trust in him. And that, that did cause him pain. And in his autobiography, he, he didn't, mock SIS. He, he didn't actually break the Official Secrets Act in his autobiography, unlike Philby, who in his book was much more cruel to his former British colleagues. Blake, I mean, this is something I discovered during the conversation. He really liked and admired Britain. He was an Anglophile. He didn't see himself as particularly British. He didn't feel that he had betrayed his own country. But he thought there was such a thing as British fair play. He felt that his trial had been fair and really all his mentors on his path to communism were members of the British establishment, from Elizabeth Hill in Cambridge to Carew Hunt, who um, wrote that book for SAS, The Theory of Practice of Communism, to the British consul in South Korea, and finally to Donald Maclean, you know, also a member of the British establishment. These are the people who Blake trusted and was guided by. So, Simon, you, you got great access to him because of your, you know, your, your connection there. But also, I think he, he felt some sort of connection with you because you were able to interview him in Dutch as well. I think so. Yes. I mean, when you speak Dutch, it creates an intimacy, you know, because it's such a small language, especially if, like Blake and me, you're speaking Dutch in a situation in a place where nobody else does. So we did, I think, have... A slightly dangerous intimacy because I didn't want to be charmed and seduced by this double agent. So that was a little bit of a, a balance that I was trying to strike of getting close to him, but not being charmed by him. Simon has very kindly provided me with a short excerpt of the interview where Blake breaks into English when his wife joins them in the garden. Yes, this, uh, when my son was... Uh... Yes, my son was two years old when we came here. When we came here, and but we started off just in the summer, uh, and then gradually we started coming here in the winter as well because we like skiing in, in the woods here, and uh, so so then we eventually we we moved in here all together, and, and my son lives in my flat, in our flat in, in Moscow. So that, that's how it happened, gradually. Everything in life happens gradually. He speaks English with a Nederlands accent. Yeah, that's why. That's why. <laughs> that is why. The book is called The Happy Traitor, Spies, Lies and Exile in Russia, The Extraordinary Story of George Blake, and is published by Profile Books. Even knowing the Blake story, I really enjoyed it, and it added some fascinating details that I wasn't aware of. Profile Books have also given us three copies to give away, so do visit our episode notes at coldwarconversations.com slash episode 164 for details of that as well as videos showing more of the George Blake story thank you very much for listening it is really appreciated goodbye
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.